And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It'll be a wonderful show today. I can hardly wait to get a chance to talk to some outstanding guests. And I'm glad that we can spend this time together. I hope your week has been good. And now we're coming up on a weekend. And I'm just loving the fact that we've had a great week of uh, broadcasting together. And I'm excited for today. And if you're interested in uh, voting uh, coming up in this election, you're going to love my next guest, Dr. Bruce Ashford. He is uh, an author and a brilliant mind and uh, a communicator. He's written Letters to an American Christian, One Nation Under God, um, but he's also written a, a book for surviving the election season. It's a short booklet with only t- with 10 tips for Christians who might need a little help during the upcoming election cycle, me being one. So I'm awfully glad to talk to Bruce again. Bruce, welcome. Hey, it's great to be on the show. Thank you. So I love uh, practical books. I love uh, I love shorter books because I'm not a huge reader, so I can sit down with a, a short ebook and get through it in a night, and I'm very happy, and I'll be looking forward to doing that with this book, How to Survive an Election Season, 10 Tips for American Christians. So um, give us a little a sneak preview. Yeah, so the book is only 40 pages long. It's Perfect. got uh, 10 tips, you know, three to four pages per tip. It's available exclusively at LifeWay.com. And what I wanted to do is just say, listen, the last 10 to 15 years in American politics has been like a combination of a war, a uh, carnival, and a Hollywood movie, mm-hmm. a professional wrestling uh, event. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's just been crazy. Uh-huh. And uh, how can we survive and even thrive in this election season in which things are going to be really nasty? You know, we're going to have uh, people acting out on their Facebook pages and acting out in public and politicians are going to do their part and act out. So how can a Christian uh, kind of stand firm uh, in uh, our Christian beliefs and apply those to the political realm and win the day? And Bruce, it's interesting because we're going to have disagreements with people we don't agree with, but we're also going to have disagreements with fellow Christians and family members and everything else. So we do need some pointers for sure. Yeah, that's right. Uh, You know, this is especially difficult time. Some lines have been redrawn in recent years and some uh, you know, there's just a lot more that's up in the air right now and uh, kind of an unsettling, uncertain time. And, uh, yeah, so these 10 tips are simple, and we can. I'll take your, your cues and where, where we want to start. Yeah, well, one of the things I love about this book, like you say, it's 40 pages, and I think it's a couple bucks, so it's really a, a no-brainer for Christians who want to get informed and want to uh, get some, some great practical tips for surviving this election season because it is here, and it's... Uh, uh, it's going to be very intense. Um, so maybe you would just uh, give us a couple of tips just to kind of tease us. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, the first one, the first tip is to remember that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And uh, the point there is that uh, to remember that we want to always be signaling to the people around us that our primary allegiance is to Christ, not necessarily a political party or a particular political leader. And I might be very actively involved in a particular party. I am the Republican Party and might be excited about this or that leader. But we have to find a way so that we're, we don't want to be viewed as a hypocritical and bigoted special interest arm of a secular political party. And so we have to find ways of uh, showing that our primary allegiance is to Christ and our secondary and third allegiances to other organizations and leaders and so forth. And that means that sometimes we have to critique uh, a political leader in our own party or uh, a person and um, just to show that our ultimate allegiance is to Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, a second tip, and I'll, I'll uh, stop after the second one, 
in terms of giving us uh, just sort of wetting our taste buds. The second tip is basically that uh, religion and politics cannot be separated. Uh, and some people think they can, but they can't. Church and state should be kept separate, but religion and politics cannot. And what I mean by that is um, it is a good thing to separate church and state. We don't want to set the Roman Catholic uh, Church or the Presbyterian Church of America or the Assemblies of God or Southern Baptist Convention up over the government uh, because these religious bodies are called to do something different, not called to make public policy and to order people around politically. And vice versa, we don't want uh, the government to set itself up over the church, telling it what it can or cannot do. So there needs to be some separation. But in terms of religion and politics, those two things cannot be separated, because if you want to find somebody's religion, look for their God. If you want to find their God, look for the thing that they love, trust, and obey more than anything else. It might be Jesus. It might be sex or money or power. It might be the Allah of Muhammad. Whatever is actually on the throne of a person's heart, you know, the Bible says that the heart is the central organizer of the human life, that out of the heart flow all the issues of life. And that just means that whatever it is that we love, trust, and obey more than anything else, you know, our God, is embraced in our heart, and it organizes everything else in life. It's going to radiate outward into everything, including our politics, our coffee shop conversations, our Facebook arguments. I wish we didn't have arguments on Facebook. Not a good place to have them. But uh, anyway, whatever it is, whoever or whatever we worship is going gonna, is gonna to definitely affect our beliefs and actions in the political realm. We need to make sure that we don't have some false gods in our heart, like, uh, uh, you know, the self. We can worship ourselves. Be more concerned about proving our point and showing that we're right or than we are representing Christ well. And so... We do want our religion, our Christian faith, to radiate outward into our politics, and we want to make sure that it genuinely is our Christian faith rather than some idol of ours that that radiates outward. Mm, so wise. So, Bruce, can you give me some coaching as to uh, information consumption as we're hearing, <clears throat> as we're seeing television, reading newspapers? How, yes. do, how do we process this, and what do we believe, and what are we influenced by? Yeah, so a uh, quick thing about news media right now is that the news the media in general have set aside their standards that they they tried to hold to for, you know, uh, more than a century here in America mm-hmm. and are now just in an uh, attempt to pander to their constituencies and make a lot of money. So uh, the news media use something called real-time tracking, and which means they track uh, when readers are on their website, listeners are on their radio shows, viewers are on their TV shows. And they know when you get on the show and when you get off, and they know what it is that they're able to analyze and know what it is that keeps you clicking, watching, or listening. And they know that there are two emotions that keep people tuned, and those two emotions are anger and fear. Mm. And so our media outlets are going to try to make you as angry and afraid as possible so that you will stay on their radio, TV, or website as long as possible so that they can make as much ad money as possible. That means that Christians need to have wisdom and discernment. That means we have to be especially careful, as a lot of Americans do, which is uh, listen to three-hour, four, five hours of uh, political talk radio in the afternoon, or watch two or three hours of political uh, commentary in the evenings. And it, it becomes a fact that certain media outlets can shape our view of the world more than the Bible does, more than the Church does. And that's a danger, especially if that particular outlet, if you think it's uh, – 
that it's, uh, you know, on the right side, right? So I think we need to be uh, very careful to fill our minds with the Word of God more than we do uh, political commentary. A second thing is that it's very important, I think, to take our news from multiple different outlets that are the most, I don't know, trustworthy possible. I try to get news from across the spectrum on the left and the right. I try to discern between outlets that have gatekeepers, in other words, editors that, that try to uh, de- determine between whether or not uh, you know, opinion article is worth publishing, and you know, and pick that kind of website over just a startup website that five guys started with no accountability. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So, in other words, we want our scripture intake and genuinely smart Christian commentary to be greater than our imbibing of the national news media. And when we do watch the national news media, we want to watch several outlets and not just one would be my best advice. That's wonderful advice. And it's, I know it's important to, to hear what's being said. And when you, when I hear a news story, I'm reluctant to even repeat it because I, how do I even know it's in fact true? Because I can't stand when I uh, repeat something that I hear that I go, well, I, I, I saw this in the Washington Post, so it must be true, or, you know, whatever, the Wall Street Journal. So they wouldn't lie, you know. <laughs> and, I, and I realized that uh, I got to just be really, really careful. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, we can get suckered so easily. Oh, yeah. You know, it's a lot of... There's a lot of um, there have been news stories out there, uh, smart ones, good ones, about what's called confirmation bias, mm-hmm. and that is that a lot of times we know what we want to believe to be true, and therefore we'll only trust outlets that confirm what we hope is true. Right. And I think that makes us especially ignorant, and we want to work against that or work against our confirmation bias by reading, you know, some commentators and and some people that might correct our view of uh, some of our views rather than merely confirming them. Yeah. All right, Dr. Bruce Ashford is my guest, and he's written a book called How to Survive an Election Season. It's a short book, 40 pages. It's 10 tips for American citizens. All you do is go to lifeway.com, and then you'll see a quantity. So you might want to go one or two or three, and you just click that little button that says Add to Cart, and then you uh, go to your cart, and you pay for it, and they send it to your house. It's a really good deal. This thing all works really, really well. We'll take a short break and be back with Bruce in just a minute. show. So glad to have Dr. Bruce Ashford as my guest. I'm a big fan of Bruce's writing, his work, his thinking, and we're so glad to have him talking about his new uh, book, booklet, I should say. It's called How to Survive an Election Season, 10 Tips for American Christians. You gave us a really nice tease with a couple tips from the book, uh, Bruce. I'd love to get a couple more, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. So um, uh, we think a a good one to, to talk about is love your neighbor, because there's a temptation in the political realm to say something like this. Politics is inherently dirty, therefore it's okay for us to be dirty. Ooh. It's okay for us to kind of twist the truth a little bit to make the bad guys on the other side of the aisle look really bad. It's okay for us to overlook bad stuff on our side of the aisle to make our guys look good. Uh, but the Bible doesn't put it that way. The Bible says that every 
sphere of culture, not just politics, but marriage and family, economics, sports and competition, arts and sciences, education, all of this, every sphere is corrupted by sin. But God never gives us permission to just say, ah, well, we'll sin too since everybody else does. And so in the political realm, we have got to be willing to tell the truth, uh, whether it's recognizing the good and something that somebody does on the other side of the aisle or criticizing something that somebody does or says on our own side of the aisle. And I always like to point out that Jesus was uh, deeply and inescapably political in that he claimed to be the king of the whole world. And that claim meant that uh, the, the, the Caesar, you know, uh, the guy in charge of all of Rome, the Roman Empire, was not the supreme leader of the world. So that was a powerfully political statement. But when Jesus made his statements, he combined truth and grace. And by truth, we mean he always spoke the truth about reality. You know, he called, he, 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 you know, I called him like I see him, as it said. He, he always call, called it like he saw it. And then by grace, I mean that um, a Christian is going to want to have a gracious demeanor, not a sissy demeanor. Uh, no, that's not what I mean by grace. I mean that a Christian is somebody who knows that if it were not for the grace of God, there go I. And so we have no license to degrade and demean people with whom we disagree um, to, uh, you know, as the Bible said, you're, you're committing murder when you uh, call somebody a fool. And what he meant by that is when you assassinate somebody's character and for no good reason, or uh, you know, uh, that's not good. So truth and grace together is what Jesus exemplified. Truth without grace makes us political bullies and jerks. We just go around hammering people with our, our truths. Uh, but grace without truth makes us political wimps and non-entities. We kind of back down and are not willing to stand up. So the neat trick is to combine truth and grace the way Jesus did. So that's uh, tip number six in the book, which is love your neighbor. I love it. Now, Bruce, in the past, and when you've been on my show, you've been so encouraging of believers to adopt a position of uh, humble confidence in the in in the culture. And I, I guess maybe the question I have is how can we do that amidst the chaos of what we're going through right now? Yeah, you know, so it's hard for us to be confident. And I think it's because the ground beneath us has been shifting for years now. And even if we get a political victory here and there, uh, we're losing the social and cultural uh, battle. Uh, that our society is drifting ever further away from God. Fewer and fewer people give legitimacy to the Bible's moral teaching. And public policy is, in one way or another, always an application of what a society believes about morality. And um, so there's actually an Italian philosopher named Augusto del Noce. He's dead now, but he wrote in the 20th century, and he argued that with the secularization process, you still have gods. It's just a different god. It's not the god of Jesus Christ. And he argued that the um, the two gods in, in our era are sex and science. So he talked about eroticism and scientism. And eroticism or scientism is not the same as liking or, or affirming science. We all should affirm science. Science is just a study of God's world. But scientism is the belief that science is the only sure way to knowledge. By implication, religious ways of knowing don't count. And since it's the only sure way to knowledge, it's the only cultural authority. Um, And so it persecutes religion indirectly by saying that religious ways of knowing, like the Bible, are illegitimate. 
eroticism persecutes religion directly because it, it is fundamentally incompatible with the Jewish, Christian, and uh, Muslim faith. Uh, but we'll focus on Christianity right now that um, the eroticism we see in the LGBTQIA plus movement is a full-on frontal assault against Christianity. Um, transgenderism is a, an over, as an ideology, is an overturning of the most basic aspects of reality. And the Bible teaches you can't flout reality forever with impunity. In other words, you can't go against the moral law forever as a society without taking a beating. Reality will give your society a good beating, and that's what's happening right now. But the good news is, as Christians, we can be confident and we can be humbly confident. Um, one of my favorite passages in the Bible <clears throat> I've mentioned on your show before is John's version of the Great Commission, John twenty twenty one, where uh, Jesus said, As the Father sent me, so I send you. Well, how did the Father send him? Well, he, uh, was, he spoke prophetic truth. He spoke the truth to power. Okay, so he had that confidence. Um, he was also sacrificial and humble. He didn't even have a place to lay his head. You know, he didn't really have a home of his own. Um, and so that kind of humble confidence, if Jesus Christ, King of the world, can be, could be confident without being arrogant, then how much more should we be confident without being arrogant? God hates arrogance. Cocky, narcissistic, arrogant people, God loathes, detests, and opposes them, the Bible says repeatedly. So we want to make sure that in the political realm that we're not arrogant, cocky, that, which means that we cannot take the cues of political talk shows on TV and on radio. Mm-hmm. Many of them are quite arrogant, quite, uh, and God opposes that. Uh, but we do have this humble confidence. We're confident because we know that Christ will return one day and will be vindicated. We're also humble because it's not we who will be returning to set the world to rise. It's Jesus Christ himself. Mm-hmm. So that, that gives some perspective. Yeah, great answer, Bruce. It seems that in the dialogue, it's not very civil. It's one ambush upon another ambush. And if you do get in that situation with a, a friend or a coworker or someone that you disagree with, uh, any counsel as to how you maintain and hold that relationship together? Yeah, I think uh, one easy and good thing to do, and you can only do it if you've got some humility, if you're interested in other people as much or more than you're interested in yourself, is to just ask questions. Don't be nervous. Don't feel like you have to always immediately make your point and jack-slap somebody verbally. Uh, You don't. I mean, political conversation doesn't have to be a form of uh, verbal martial arts. I think a fun thing to do, or maybe not fun, but (laughs) sometimes painful, actually, but a fascinating thing to do is when you find yourself disagreeing with someone, sit down and just ask questions and get to the bottom of why they believe what they believe. And if you listen long enough, most of the time somebody is then going to be willing to listen to you. But only if you've really listened and grasped what they believe. And one of the tests of whether you've listened is when you get ready to disagree with that person, can you state their case and what they believe in a way that they would agree and say, yes, you've understood me. That's exactly what I believe and why. And if you can do that and you've really understood it, then you can kind of appeal to them and try to persuade them and show them another way, and you can usually do it without animosity, um, I've found. Yeah. And then your friend feels like you really do care. You're just not sitting there waiting to throw your arrows in yes. their direction. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so... 
I think we got time for um, one more tip. I just am okay. loving this, Bruce. So if you would just give us one more, that'd be terrific. Yeah. So the last tip is don't lose your mind. <laughs> and <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah. So th- there's a great church father named Augustine or Augustine. You can pronounce it either way. And Augustine lived at a time when um, the empire of Rome was crumbling and losing its greatness, and Christians were persecuted severely. And since he lived in a time of Christians being persecuted, I think that we do also live in a time when we're at least facing a lot of resistance. And Augustine had prepared for his entire life, and toward the end of his life, when the crisis was at its peak, he was asked to write a defense of the Christian faith, because the pagans in Rome argued that Christianity would destroy the Roman Empire, that it was a weak mamby-pamby faith that had no resources to guide a society. And Augustine wrote, uh, he had a guy request that he write a treatise, and he answered that request with a thousand-page letter called The City of God. And in this book, he tells the Bible's narrative. The Bible tells a story about God in the world, and it's the true story of the whole world. And Augustine tells that story, and then he shows how the Roman story of the world, Roman history, was just a bit player in the grand sweep of, of history. And he was able to um, persuade, when he tried to persuade the pagans, he, he showed how the Bible told a better story of the world than the pagan narrative did. And he also was able to quote the pagans' top philosophers and thinkers and politicians and then show why those people were wrong. And all that to say, I think it would be a good thing if we in America could spend as much time kind of preparing and meditating on the Bible and studying political trends and just doing whatever we can to be knowledgeable so, it, so that when the moment comes, when God gives us a moment, you know, for us it won't be a thousand-page letter to the Roman Empire, but for us it might be a coffee shop conversation, conversation with a neighbor, mm-hmm. um, a time to do a radio show with Bill Arnold. That's what I get to do. Exactly. That's uh, a lot of fun. When these moments happen, we want to be prepared. So let's not fritter all of our time away, and let's spend some of our time really digging in and trying to be prepared so that when God gives us an opportunity to speak a good word into a bad political moment, we'll be ready. Like always, Bruce, you're so wise. I love your new book. Thank you for sharing this time. Hey, it's been great to be on the show. The book is available. It's called How to Survive an Election Season at uh, Lifeway.com. Lifeway.com. It's a reasonably priced couple bucks. You can uh, get it and or get several copies and hand out to friends and family. Bruce, have a great rest of the day. Blessings to you and your family. Thank you. You bet. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back with lots more. On the program, if you have not headed over to her uh, website, RebeccaRee.net, I highly encourage you to do so. You can sign up for free to get on her mailing list to get her blogs as soon as they come out. Get them nice and fresh, and then she is nice enough to come on the show and uh, regularly share with us uh, the stories that she writes. And she is a Hebrew scholar, but she can turn around and take 
any everyday ordinary object and turn it into a, a lesson and a biblical application that you will not forget. Here she's with us again today. Rebecca, welcome back. Well, it's very nice to be drinking a lemonade on your porch again. It is so nice <laughs> of you to do so. And uh, feel free to put your feet up. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Oop, not on that. On the other one. On the ottoman. There you go. Okay. All right. So we're going to talk about the stick today. I'm excited to hear about that. Yeah. So um, the title of the blog I wanted to talk about is, as you said, called The Stick, which is a meditation on what it's like to cope with uh, loss that is deep and long term. And right now as a nation, we could definitely say that we're contending with that kind of loss on a large scale because of the pandemic. I mean, we have loss of life literally in the hundreds of thousands and then loss of our way of life as we take measures to fight covid Um, And at the same time, um, it's a unique moment in our history as a nation. We are acknowledging that we have lost our way in terms of the social justice that's required by the Bible. And we desperately need to do something about it. So that's another um, crossroads of, you know, deep and long-term loss that we have to cope with. And, you know, if you want to add a third factor into the mix, um, we're even in danger of losing our home because we have disasters that are both natural and man-made. Um, consuming our planet, you know, so that's something else that we're kind of thinking about in terms of large scale, deeply entrenched uh, losses. But the thing I kind of wanted to focus on today was, you know, all those losses are are overwhelming enough. But what about the losses that we experience on an individual scale, um, which may look different from person to person? And I'll start by talking about um, some of the losses that I as an individual experienced. So um, my son is almost eight years old, and he has autism. And since his diagnosis, he was diagnosed about one and a half years old. So we've been living with this diagnosis for quite a while. Um, We've been dealing with devastating loss basically on a daily basis. And that happens kind of for two reasons. And both both of those reasons are grounded in the whole comparison thing that you know you shouldn't do in your head, but you inevitably do no matter what the issue is. And, you know, special needs parents can't help but notice with kind of a constant and stinging clarity the difference between their kids and typical kids, whether they're, you know, bringing their child into school and they see or they're at a birthday party, they're at church, whatever. They just see it. You can't you can't help but not see it. I mean, you can't you can't not see it. Mm -hmm. And, And then the other aspect is special needs parents constantly have to adjust to the fact that the kid that they have may not at all match the the idealized kid that they imagined when they dreamed of being parents. So they might have dreamed of, you know, I'm going to do this with my kid. I'm going to read my favorite stories and cook, make bake cookies and take them to this place and that place. And then the child that comes to you needs drastically different things from you, and you can't do any of those things. So it's sort of a loss of that idealized child that you are carrying around your head that you also have to cope with. So, um, The story I wanted to tell today begins with my husband and I deciding to take our son um, to the Quinnipiac River here in Connecticut. And um, there's a fenced walkway that follows the river. And people stroll there and they fish there. And it's sort of in a semi-enclosed place. And so it's easy for us to keep track of him. And so we thought it would be a good place to let him run around and, you know, get some exercise. Because all parents, whether you have a special needs child or not, it's hard to It's been hard to, like, find places to let your kid, you know, exercise and get out there with all the social distancing. So we found this place, and we decided, okay, let's go. And 
before we actually went, got in the, the car for the trip, somehow I got it into my head that my son would enjoy taking a stick and dragging it against the metal fence along the river. Kind of like one of those, I don't know, it's kind of an idealized Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn kind of thing mm-hmm. to do. You imagine a little boy dragging a stick along a picket fence. Well, I thought, you know, he loves making these uh, repetitive noises. And I thought he's going to love, you know, taking the stick and, and going along that metal fence. And he's going to love how that sounds. And I'd like to try that with him. So I went through the toys and things that we had at home. And I found this really nice ring stacker that we had. And I don't know whether the audience can picture it, but I'll describe it. And um, it basically has a base and a long stick goes into that base. And then uh, rings of different sizes stack mm-hmm. on the um, ring stick. So I had one that was particularly nice. And you could take the stick out and it had sort of a nice length to it and a, a kind of a heft to it. And I thought that's going to sound perfect. It's this nice, heavy plastic and we goes against the metal, it's going to make, make a nice sound. So I put it in my backpack, and we get on the, under, you know, get on the road, and we pull up to the, to the river, and I feel my, inside my heart I'm getting excited about this, and I don't say anything. We just start walking towards the river, and um, just kind of I subtly start to walk a little bit ahead of my son, take the, the stick out of my backpack, and start dragging it along the fence to show him how this game was going to be played. And immediately, my son runs up, grabs the stick out of my hand, and my heart just lifts. I think to myself, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. He's going to love doing it. And I'm going to love watching him have a great time doing this little activity. So, of course, you know that's not what happened. <laughs> um, before I could blink, my son pulled back his arm and threw that stick straight into the river. And I mean, he pitched it. It went like right into the middle of the river. Um, and in a split second, you know, there went the critical piece of a rather expensive toy that was now ruined. And there also went a critical piece of my heart right along with it because you know, their, their part of me got torn apart for the millionth, millionth time as a special needs parent. You know, it seems to me, and I, I don't understand why I have this, um, I don't know what you want to call it, like a recurring naivete. <laughs> I keep forgetting that my child just can't respond in a, you know, quote unquote, normal way, like other kids mm-hmm. when presented with, with certain situations. And that I somehow need to sort of emotionally budget for that. But, um, you know, I need to somehow prepare myself for a disappointing, or in this case, it was a destructive response from him when I was trying to give him a gift. But, you know, how do you do that? Much less, how do you remember to do that every time, you know, you want to do something nice for your kid? So I haven't figured that one out yet. And I've talked to other special needs parents and they say, yeah, we have that kind of amnesia too. We keep forgetting, you know, we keep setting these things up and they keep like blowing up in our faces. And yet we keep setting them up again. And you know, it's that eternal optimism you want to have for your kid, that hope. Um, so, you know, back to the story, what was there for us to do as a family except to just keep on walking? We were there. We needed to get a little exercise. So, But instead of this happy, you know, clang, clang, clang noise that I was expecting to hear, there was just this terrible silence. And I was really struggling in, inside. You know, I knew that I should just sort of let it go. 
And that's something that special needs parents, you know, learn very quickly is you just got to let the situation go and try for the next time, you know. Um, part of me just wanted to sort of let it go and start weeping. Um, part of me wanted to go numb because there's this, you're like walking this tightrope between, you know, it's completely falling apart, but knowing you have to kind of hold it together in the moment. Um, and all of me still wanted to feel this deep love and affection for my boy, but it was hard to, because um, whether he meant it or not, I felt like he had really rejected me and rejected, you know, all that I had put, all that I had invested in this little activity for him. It was like he had rejected my love. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of hard to feel that, that love and affection that you always want to feel for your kid. And, you know, worse yet, into that silence, there was this dark voice. You know, you can call it autism. You can call it a spiritual enemy. But it just was casually saying to me, I can mess with you anytime I want because your boy is mine. And try putting on a brave face with that tape running in your head, (laughs) which it did. It ran in my head until we almost made it back to the car, which was we had parked by this little rocky area um, by the shore. And that's where I was. That's the headspace I was in. That was the heart space I was in. And again, we were just engulfed in this silence. Um, And my husband was walking ahead, holding my, my son's hand very tightly. And suddenly, when I least expected it, I saw something. And there was a bit of white bobbing in the dark water and it was being driven towards the shore where there was this like little rocky area by the currents of the river. And, you know, I take a closer look and quite impossibly it's the stick. (laughs) (laughs) And also quite impossibly it's moving fast enough by those currents that it's going to intersect with our path very shortly because even if it was the stick, if it weren't traveling at the right in the right direction at the right pace, my son would never have tolerated just waiting around for it to come. You know, mm-hmm. he has he has trouble with long waits. So I call to my husband. He transfers, the, you know, my son to me, takes off his shoes. You know, I gotta love him for this. Those are slippery rocks filled with like not so pleasant things. <laughs> There's a factory right, you know, right mm-hmm. across the river. Takes off his shoes crawls onto those slippery rocks, stretches out his arm, and snatches that stick from the water. And, you know, five minutes later, we're in the car, and for all intents and purposes, if anybody had looked at us on the outside, we looked exactly like we did driving in. It was two adults in the front, one one kid in the back, and there was a stick safely stowed in the trunk. Um, But as we drove home, something was, like, literally thundering inside of me. I just knew that I had had a divine encounter, but it was hard for me to interpret what that meant. I just knew something had happened. All right, Rebecca, I think this might be a good time to take a short pause because this story has got a lot of momentum and I can't wait to get back to it. (laughs) So I hope this 90 seconds passes quickly. Dr. Rebecca Rhea is my guest. You can always head to RebeccaRhea.net. We'll be right back.
So you're listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. That we want to hear from you. We'd love to know what you think about the show. Well, most of us do. Bill says this week he's only accepting five-star reviews. Either way, you can take the official Afternoons with Bill Arnold listener survey. It just takes a couple of minutes and you get a chance to win an Amazon gift card. Text the word survey to 877-933-2484. Find it online at myfaithradio.com slash survey. Welcome back to the show. My guest is uh, Rebecca Ree. We're hearing a story called The Stick. And boy, this is so interesting, Rebecca, how you had this little moment of the stick has gone for good and now it's back in the car. So pick up where yep. you left off. So Okay, so I'm trying to figure out what happened. So um, I, go, I go to the Bible for some help, and I was reminded of a story about somebody else that loses something precious in the river. And it's found in 2 Kings or 2 Kings 4. And it's about the prophet Elisha and his protégés and um, or, you know, his his uh, prophets in the, in training. Well, we'll just call them his protégés for, for our purposes. So the protégés are building housing for themselves. And so they go to the Jordan River and they are busy cutting down trees. And as one of the protégés swings his axe, the, the axe head comes loose and plunges straight into the water. And out of the mouth of this protege flies, you know, an expression of loss. We've been talking about loss. He says, alas, my master, it, and by it, he means the axe head, it was borrowed. And in response, Elisha says, where did it fall? And when the protege shows him, Elisha cuts off a stick, throws it in the water, and causes the axe head to miraculously float. Um, and then the protege, just like my husband, reaches out his hand, stretches it over the water, and snatches that uh, axe head to recover it. And now I want to make clear um, right now to give us some context. By this point, Elisha was a very well-known miracle worker. In fact, some of his miracle workers sound uh, a lot like um, somebody from the New Testament. He had fed a multitude, he had healed somebody of leprosy, and he had even raised a dead boy. So um, it's not surprising to me that Elisha was able to recover the axe head. What surprised me about in this passage is that he recovered the axe head without being asked to do so. You know, the protege never even speaks a word of petition to his master. All we hear are words of lament. And in the Hebrew, if we were to translate it more literally, it would say, alas, my master, my master, it i.e. the axe head, it was asked. The, the borrowed word literally means it was asked. I asked that thing from somebody. Um, so after reading that passage, I understood why I was thundering inside after my husband recovered that stick, which was when that stick fell into the river, I was so wrapped up in my shock and my grief that I never once stopped to pray about the situation. And I really thought about it. I really didn't. I never said help. I never asked. And yet God answered me and brought me that renegade stick back as if I had asked. Wow. And more, and more importantly, he immediately, and, and, you know, these answers don't always come immediately, but this time he immediately addressed that dark voice in my head. 
And he said, what you think is yours is not yours. It's mine, and I reclaim it now. Now, (laughs) this kind of immediate and undeserved divine response does not make sense to me. You know, even though my theology on paper is, you know, as correct as it could be, and I, I, even though I have this theology and even though I have all this education in biblical studies, I basically le- le- live as an unbeliever of the gospel. If you like dig down to my, you know, the heart, the place where I live every day, I try to earn everything good that I get. And I try to keep bad things at bay by having good behavior. Um, and again, I've studied the Bible a lot and this is how I live. And I think um, I've also seen a lot of miracles. And I still live this way, and I think this is true for many of us as Christians, um, no matter how much we've studied or how many miracles we've seen. Um, And I think more than anyone, my husband understands that I live by this playground sense of justice, and I think that's why he took off his shoes and risked those slippery rocks when when it really would have made more sense for him to just say, let's cut our losses and go home. (laughs) He, He knew I needed to have that experience of direct and immediate love um, to answer the loss that I had just gone through. And um, that is why someone like me has a shot of coming back from a terrible loss, even when she hasn't earned it through prayer or anything else. Because I've been shown again and again through people, and I can only say it this way, they have loved me enduringly. And they have showed me that sometimes others will anticipate what you need, God included, and they give it to you even when you're still busy lamenting. And the way I put it in the blog was, sometimes the cavalry arrives while you're still tallying up the losses. Sometimes, alas, suffices. And do you know who else needed that direct and immediate demonstration of love? Um, I was reminded of Peter when he was walking on the water towards Jesus and the wind and the waves you know, distracted him in the midst of his miracle, and he starts to sink. Jesus stretches his arm out over the water. Again, we've got that image of the arm stretched out over the water, and he pulls his beloved disciple back up, even though he was not exercising perfect faith in that moment. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, Jesus even chides Peter. He says, why did you doubt? And by that, I have to believe Jesus meant you know, don't you know that I'm always here from you, here for you? Don't you know that you are always mine? Just like that voice was saying in my head, you're always mine. Um, so I just wanted to encourage anyone that's in that difficult place that the next time you find your heart breaking or your voice constricting or your soul fragmenting into shards of pain and unbelief, Remember that your maker views helping you as a complete no-brainer. He is perpetually planning things for you that he hopes will please and strengthen you. And when you respond to circumstances more like a maxed-out child than a mature believer, the story is hardly, hardly over. The wind and the waves still obey him, causing what is lost to be found. Incredible. You're really speaking to me directly today, Rebecca, which is what you do most days, but today in particular. Um, and if I can offer a couple, you know, a little bit of practical bit of advice. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we've, Always. Talked about, <laughs> we've talked about that image of the arm stretched over the water about to recover what is lost, right? 
But what was equally important in the, the story that I told you about, you know, our family by the river, was there was this um, invisible underground current playing a part in bringing that stick back to me. And I think for us, we can interpret that as prayer, like intercession, and specifically intercession that we can't necessarily do for ourselves in the moment. I think it's important um, as we mature as Christians to develop a circle of people around us who pray for us and who can get those invisible currents moving when we are immobilized in our own pain, because inevitably we are going to slam into some kind of loss and we need each other to cope, um, you know, cope and overcome. Um, and we need to find God and find our grounding in him again. And so we need others to, I have an email chain that I send my SOSs out to when I feel like I can't even pray. I'm still just trying to stand on my feet. Mm -hmm. Um, and a couple of other small things I would, it would just add this is, you know, we can't go by our own thoughts and feelings um, because those are going to mislead us. You know, that my, my own thoughts and feelings when my son threw that stick, you know, in the water were taking me to a very dark place. Sometimes we have to rely on the thoughts and feelings of those who are wise and compassionate, who aren't in a dark place and who God has placed in our lives. And, you know, don't be surprised. Some of that wisdom and com compassion could come from very surprising places. You know, you never want to discount who God may use to speak into your darkness and to be that immediate and direct response to a loss you may have just experienced. Um, and then the last thing I would add would be, you know, when that dark voice speaks, you know, so casually and so cruelly into your heart, you know, we have to have a ready answer to that. that that's no joke. The strength and the the sort of intimate knowledge that voice has of us has to, has to have like a really robust answer. And I find those answers in the Bible, in the scripture, and in the stories that I find there. So that would be my little bit of practical advice in terms of coping with our losses. Really, really powerful message today, Rebecca, as always. Thank you um, for sharing that. It's, you know, I think of, of Peter when he stepped out onto the water and then he started to sink. And I doubt as he was sinking, he was starting to pray. He was probably just <laughs> flat out panicking. Yeah, I think in, in one of the, at least one of the versions, he does say like, master save me. Like he does cry out, but it's, it's, it's not what, what you would, you would call like, you know, a highly theological um, and uh, well-grounded prayer. It's, you know, it's like you said, it's more of a, a, uh, and uh, I don't know what you would call it, just an outcry, mm -hmm. you know, an outcry of, the, of panic. Yeah. So thank you again for uh, coming on the show and sharing uh, this incredible story. This, this story is called The Stick. And if you go to Rebecca Rees' uh, website, you can uh, sign up to be on her blog and get these sent to your uh, email box regularly when they come out. And I think you'll be glad you did. I know I am, and I look forward to uh, every fresh entry that comes out, Rebecca. So Thank you for uh, well, sharing, and thank you for coming on the show. Oh, you're welcome. And I just want to say this. You can gu I can guarantee you that stick is never leaving my house again. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I already know that? Thank you so much for uh, putting that in. So you you're can, welcome. Yeah, Rebecca uh, Ree has been my guest. Go to RebeccaRee.net, and you can uh, read her blog and sign up to get on her uh, emailing all for free. Rebecca, thank you so much, and have a great rest of the day. Thank you, Bill.
You bet. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back with lots more.